edition of Setting the Tone Interviews. My name is Elizabeth, and today Daniel, Lauren, and I are delighted to get the chance to talk with Paul McCrane. Paul is best known to ER fans as Dr. Robert Romano, making 126 on-screen appearances, as well as directing nine episodes. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. All right, so to kick us off, how'd you get your start as an actor? Wow, uh, that's a long time ago. Um, <laughs> woo. I haven't told this story in a while. So, okay, so I was, um, I grew up in Philadelphia and in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And when I was, um, boy, I guess 15, uh, a guitar teacher that I had at the time named um, Russ Faith, um, who, um, he has his own history in the business. Um, he thought I could make it as a musician if I was serious. And he asked me about that. And I said, well, I think I really actually want to be an actor. Um, and, uh, so he put me in touch with, um, a manager, um, uh, who, uh, worked out of Philadelphia and, um, they connected me with an agent and I actually started auditioning when I was 15. Um, wow. I got, you know, uh, you know, look, whatever talent I had and whatever minimal skill I had, which was certainly minimal, um, the competition for roles that can be played by someone who's actually 15 is obviously much more slim than um, for someone in their 20s or 30s. So I got very lucky and I got a little bit of a foot in the door and I started um, working one of the first, I started, I did a play at the MacArthur Theater in Princeton. I did a couple of readings in the city. And um, then the first big uh, thing I had to do, I, I got a role in John Guare's play Landscape of the Body when I was 16 which started in Chicago or outside of Chicago, I should say, at um, a regional theater there, and then was at the public theater. Um, and that was kind of the beginning. And um, it wasn't until, uh, I mean, it was very fortunate that a few years later, I actually realized that I had to kind of learn what the hell I was doing. So um, I auditioned for Uta Hagen's class in New York, because <laughs> uh, a friend of mine told me about her and told me about her book, and I read her book, and it just completely made complete sense to me. So I um, chased her down. and. Um, got fortunate enough to be allowed in her class and that was when i actually began to study seriously and and begin to learn a little bit of what the hell i was trying to do um and we know you've you've done a bunch in film television and theater but how does your approach differ for each of those mediums and if you had to pick i know it's hard to pick a favorite child but which is your favorite to do no question theater is my favorite i haven't done it in All a right. while but is <laughs> there's no question as an actor um yeah. Uh, the 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 difference. Uh, I I'm always extremely impressed by actors who are really good in film and television who um, have never done theater because, to me, there's a kind of implied or implicit unconscious audience. Um, whenever I work, and for better and worse, I suppose, and um, without having had the experience of performing in front of actual human beings. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I don't think I would have had, you know, whatever skill level I've developed, I don't think I would have had the same experience as I, I, uh, I have because of, of working in theater. I just think that the, um, the experience of the theater is the closest thing to a religious experience that I have. You can have that in film and television, but it's removed. The audience is removed. You, the, the whole experience, you're doing it. It's not, it doesn't have that, um, with few exceptions, live experience with an audience there where you were all communally exploring, examining the ideas of the playwright and um, and the experience of living as we attempt to portray it 
as actors. So <laughs> that's a highfalutin answer, I suppose. <laughs> but that's um, my honest opinion. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I I, uh, I I haven't been on stage in a long time, but that's absolutely. Uh, but, I mean, you know, bad theater is bad theater, and I've done plenty and seen plenty <laughs> of that. But um, uh, good. There's nothing like the experience of good theater. To me, it is a um, it is one of the most humanizing experiences we can have. Yeah. I imagine too probably having that theater background is probably beneficial in something like uh an er where you're going to be uh you know doing a lot of fast-paced dialogue and a lot of like quick uh, uh set changes and quick you know th those trauma scenes are like kind of a a dance unto themselves you know and i imagine having that theater training is probably super beneficial in that case i, I think it probably was you know i mean uh, uh or has been for me um Certainly on ER, it's interesting, you know, I, it was, it was such a fascinating thing for me to step into that because I came in and it was, I think season four, might've been three, four. Yep. Um, season four. Season four. And so it was already the biggest thing on television. And at that time, you know, again, you guys are all, you weren't born yet, but there were, there were, <laughs> uh, you know, there were three major networks and a couple of other kind quasi minor yeah. networks and some UHF channels. And that was kind of it. Um, and, um, so the amount of people in the country and the world who were watching that was, I mean, it was, I'm sure there are others, but it was, it was one of the last huge, enormous cultural, oh, sort of, yeah. you know, moments uh, that we all shared. So anyway, to, to walk into that and, um, and have everybody there be, you didn't ask me this, but I'll go here right away. That was, it was one of the, it was the biggest thing on television. Every single person on the show was, highly recognizable and it so easily could have been a um a recipe for disastrous diva awful behavior and there was no one in the cast that was like that absolutely no one everyone there seemed and i was really impressed by this because i'd been in the business for quite a while uh, at that point and seen lots of bad behavior and um everyone there knew they were lucky everyone yeah. knew they were lucky you know tony george uh uh, you know, the entire cast, um, Juliana, everybody, you know, people who could easily have been monsters on set were um, the only way they were monsters was in their abilities and their commitment to doing good work and trying to have a good time and being human beings and getting the work done and getting home. Um, very, very, very rare. Uh, so right. it, was, it was great. Anyway, yeah. you didn't ask me that. I don't know where it started. No, but that, no, that, that, that actually dovetailed perfectly into the next question, which is, you know, we, we talked about your, your theater background, your, your getting auditions and getting jobs at 15, 16, and then we gloss over a solid, I don't know, 20 years of, of, <laughs> uh, of, uh, history there. Um, RoboCop's in there. Yeah. RoboCop's <laughs> in there. Fame is in there. Like you, you got, you, you got some jobs, uh, but how does it, what's the, uh, the sequence of events that leads to you getting onto the biggest thing on television at the time in season four? see if I can even remember it. Um, you know, as you said, I've been working for quite a while as an actor. Uh, I stayed in New York after after the movie fame because uh, I wanted to work in theater mostly and for the time for that time. And uh, after and I would occasionally come to L.A. and get some work if I was lucky or try to get some work. Uh, and then um, I guess after. Oh, a few years I was in I was in. Yeah, I was in New York and um, hit dry spell, a dry spell, as almost every actor I know hits it at, at, on occasion and um, moved out to L.A. to, again, look for some work. Didn't get any. I was very broke. Um, did a short lived. I did get eventually a job, a short lived uh, show called Under Suspicion that Eric LaSalle actually 
was a pilot of, but then left to do ERI. Oh, remember, yes. he had a, it was a first oh, yeah. position, second position thing. I can't remember exactly what it was. And um, I think he started shooting or maybe he was there for rehearsals and I can't remember yeah. exactly. And then Michael Beach replaced him, who's a great actor uh, as well. And um, anyway, so then uh, that show unfortunately was short-lived and I was knocking around and I got an audition for a role that was supposed to be a, you know, it's a thing that often still happens where they say it's a character, maybe he's going to recur it's just for this episode now and we'll see from there. And um, very, very fortunately, I, I got the gig and uh, I guess they didn't dislike what I did. So they started bringing me back as a recurring character. Uh, and after two years of doing a recurring character, and honestly, after having been told without my even asking, uh, one of the producers at one point said to me, I just have to tell you, we're never going to make you a regular. And I said, uh, okay, I wasn't, actually what happened was I, I went into uh, the producer's offices at the end of the second season I was on as a recurring character, literally just to say thanks for the year. Uh, yeah. And one of the producers said that to me and I said, thank you. Uh, have a nice summer. But, you know, have a great summer. And, and I said, I, I wasn't, I really, it's important to me, you know, I wasn't coming here for that. I was literally just coming to say thanks for the year. Um, and during that summer, they offered me a gig as a regular. Uh, so who knows? I don't know what happened with that. Um, so then, uh, yeah, then I then I uh, I was a regular on the show, I think for, I guess you can only say four and a little bit. I got paid for five years, but I was on for four and a little bit uh, before they decided to amputate uh, and then kill, uh, <laughs> amputate the character's arm and then kill him. Um, uh and but you know at that time i'd started directing on the show as well uh and it was um yeah it, it really opened up a whole world for me so it was great it was really fun yeah so we touched on this a little bit before but uh what was your learning curve like for all the medical terminology on the show especially as playing a like the head of head of surgery as well i can imagine that's very different yeah uh it was, well, you know, one of the things that was very impressive to me at the time was how much jar medical jargon was thrown around and how much they really smartly understood that people didn't need to understand most of it. The fact that we would have some sort of a working knowledge of it, at least what we were saying as we were blowing through stuff. When I, uh, well, two things about the show. Um, the first episode I was on was, as I recall, directed by Jonathan Kaplan, who was a director and, and producer on the show. And my mentor is a director as well, and a good friend and a great director. Uh, and I can't, I remember walking in to do my first scene and, um, you know, I just came in and said my lines as I thought was right. And he just said, no, 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 Paul, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you got to come in here and you got to just, just spit it out. Just spit it out. You're in a hurry. Just in and out and spit it out. And I don't know if I should even say this, but uh, can I say this? All right, maybe cut this out. I'm not sure because I don't want to. Okay. Okay. But but he he basically said, yeah, no, you got to come, spit it out, spit it out, and get going. Save that shit for Chicago Hope. Uh, and, uh... <laughs> oh, please. Uh, of all the we've heard a, we've heard several Jonathan Kaplan stories at this point. That might be one of the tamer ones, actually. So yeah. <laughs> I love Jonathan. I love Jonathan. He's one of my favorite human beings on the planet. Um, but he was, you know, at that time, as you may, may know, or I'm sure you know and recall. There was a little bit of a competition for that oh, yeah. for a few years because they both came out at the same time. Um, the medical jargon I was saying was was impressive to me that they learned quickly that it, it didn't matter if the audience knew a lot of the medical jargon. 
obviously, if it was specific to a storyline, you'd have to find some way to explain it. But um, as long as we have a working knowledge, and everybody really did want to have at least a working knowledge of what the hell they were saying, uh, it was great. Um, it was a challenge. I remember one term um, that I got several years in called, uh, I don't even remember what the procedure is, but it's a kolidoko jejunostomy. I can't spell that now, but it took up the entire line of the script page uh, to uh, to say that, and it it was um, it was quite a challenge. And as uh, you know, as they continued to develop the character into this kind of fast talking guy, which I can tend to be on my own, they would write me these massive kind of paragraphs or these very quick bantery kinds of things, which. I could do, but would occasionally hit roadblocks and it would be, it would, once, once I would land on them, it would be good, but it could take a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And it was, um, yeah, it was quite a challenge to keep that stuff flying and firing out there uh, as we went. And everybody had that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what some of the others have said about that. It's, it's been a wide range of um, responses to that sort of question. And, and, you know, from main cast all the way down to like, you know, uh, some of the EMT uh, actors and stuff that that have you know and theirs is like a whole different challenge because they're walking in the door giving the bullet uh answers yep. of you know what's wrong with this patient and stuff so that it for some it's been like oh I, it came second nature to me and then other people it's been like oh I, it was like going to med school you know it was like learning yes. how to do all this stuff for real yeah there was a little bit of uh you know a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing because um we could occasionally get a little um <laughs> Uh, I, I, over the years while I was on that and had some experiences with some medical stuff, the great benefit of it was that I, I had a kind of working knowledge of a doctor's mental framework. So it actually yeah. helped me in terms of communicating <laughs> with doctors a lot of the time, but it yeah. could also, um, uh, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You could also start to get so, uh, a mistaken idea that you really understood what the hell you were doing, which of course <laughs> not any of us did. So I used to yeah. say to people, if you, if you want to get well, you know, if you, if you want me to treat you, I'm happy to treat you. You can pay me, but don't come to me if you want to get well. So, <laughs> Oh, man. So, you know, this, again, sort of dovetails into my next question of you, you, part of that medical jargon, part of what I would imagine was so difficult for you is that you're playing sort of this, like, know-it-all kind of guy who's, like, an expert on everything and loves to lord his expertise over everyone around him. Uh We've asked one other character, one other actor, this question, whose character is sort of known for this on the show. But like, did you enjoy the experience of getting to play such an unrelenting asshole week oh, after course. week? Of course. <laughs> oh, look. Um, one of the challenges of doing a TV series, right? Structurally, I mean, ER was a little different in certain ways because it evolved and had a continuing um, evolution of cast and that kind of thing, which was a smart right. way to tell those stories over the years. But um, one of the challenges of a television show is an overly simplistic way of doing it. And the ones that don't do it well do this really badly. Uh, each character presents a certain flavor. So mm -hmm. what ends up happening, if you go with the metaphor, is you end up presenting that flavor all the time. And it right. can feel very, very um, stagnate, stagnant uh, and stagnating for uh, actors if you're not careful. Um, and so the great advantage of a character like i had on that show i mean it's the greatest job i'll ever have um i worked two to four days an episode tops mm -hmm. i never had a scene where i was pushing the plot 
or having to dump a bunch of exposition. Uh, if my character was there, uh, my character was a jalapeno. If my character was there, <laughs> it was there to, to blast some heat in the scene and get the hell out. So yeah. nothing I did was dry. It was always full of <gasps> conflict and, um, uh, you know, acid and um, uh, spice. So it was a ball. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I my character was a jalapeno. Might be my one of my. It's, it's definitely. Uh, I can. I can definitely Thank say you. that's going to be a descriptor going forward. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We 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 have quite a lot of you left on our recaps, so that's going to be a wonderful way to talk about it. But um, with all that, yeah. With all that being said, your character was such a good foil for so many of the show's favorites, like Eric Lasalle, Alex Kingston, and Laura Inez, among others. Did you have a favorite to go toe-to-toe with? And who did you feel like brought the best or worst out of you if we're talking about Romano? Uh, oh, Romano? Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have a favorite. I loved working with Alex Kingston. She was just a dream to work with. I was very fortunate to have a lot to do with her, uh, even though most of it was kind of horrendous um, from, from my character. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but she was just a dream. She's just the sweetest person and an exceptional actress and a great colleague. And the same is true of Eric, but, um, you know, I, I had more to do with it. Uh, obviously, Eric's and my stuff was was different than the stuff I had with with uh, Alex. I suppose if my character had a crush on Eric's character, it might have been a different story. But um, <sighs> Yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, I mostly worked with the two of them and um, and later more with Laura, actually, who I'd known before this, uh, before the show, I should mm. say. And um, and she's just spectacular as well. So, no, I can't. Uh, uh, honestly, there's no one I didn't enjoy working with on the show. It was really a, a rare, 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 rare thing to have that number of people on the show. And there was also, I will say, I mean, I don't think this is any secret. There was a real... Uh, well, okay, whatever. There was a no asshole policy on the show, whether it was voiced that way or not. Um, so you could have, um, uh, you know, when the show was at its in its prime and it would get uh, big name people to come on and do an arc of uh, three to six episodes or whatever it was. And if you had a six episode arc and by episode two, you had clearly established that you were not pleasant to work with, you died. I mean, it didn't matter. Oh. I mean, you were gone. Yeah. And um, that was one of the great strengths of, of the fact that the show was so popular. And also, frankly, you know, John Wells, um, uh, to his credit as a, as a manager, you know, he, he, he didn't, he didn't, didn't want that kind of, you know, poison on set. It wasn't tolerated. So it was, um, yeah, it was great. So shifting gears a little bit, some fans have questioned whether a character like Romano could still exist on a modern medical drama. How do you think the character would have, could have, or would have evolved for a modern audience? Tell me uh, more about that, that the, the conceit that you're working with. Tell me more about like, when you say the question, why, how, what, what, what do they think would be not, not, how would Vermont uh, not be on a current <laughs> show now? I'm curious. Hmm. Um, I, I'm going to say with the rise of Me Too and his treatment of, you know, characters like Alex and everything. Yeah, but do you think that's situations in the like world that, right but... now? 
I mean, if I were that person on set, of course I would not. Oh, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Not. But if that does do, do, have we gotten to the point where characters like that don't exist in, in dramas? I, I don't think so. I, I don't know. But, I mean, it, it, it's the Blazing Saddles I, argument, you know, of like, well, could you make Blazing Saddles today? And I don't, I disagree. I, I think there's, especially in a, with a character like Romano, who is proven kind of over and over again, to be the asshole in the room and to be wrong and to be, you know, so like, it's all a matter of perspective, but there are those arguments that get made of like, Oh, well you couldn't have a character like that today. They'd it'd be too PC or something like that. And I just, it's a, it's a distinction that I don't agree with, but it is out there. That's very interesting to me and forgive me for not knowing it um, beforehand, that there was even that conversation about it. I, I, um, I would, I would hope that's not true because look, maybe look the thing that was fun about Romano to play and I think for people was that there was something deliciously revolting about him mm-hmm. and it, it it he he got his comeuppance enough times or there was something that was so I, it, you know it's like a tooth it's like when you were a kid and you had that loose tooth and it was almost out, but it wasn't, but you couldn't stop playing with it, even though it hurt and you had to be playing with it. There seems to have been something about him that, that, I mean, uh, it's copyright, you know, whatever, uh, you know, yeah. he became the character that people, someone started saying that you love to hate. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, there, there seemed to be truth in that. He was a pretty entertaining guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone who was, who was pretty, Look, I think that maybe the, I I understand what you're saying in that what might happen in today's, I think what you're saying is that what might happen in today's culture is there would be such an uproar about a character like mm-hmm. that being in a position and that it would be, there's a humorlessness that can take hold of these kinds of uber um, sort of puritanical or purist, I should say purist uh, positions that that um perhaps would have made it would have it would have caused more of an uproar uh perhaps is what i guess you're saying than than mm, did at yeah. the time but archie bunker caused an uproar mm. and george jefferson caused an uproar and um uh any number of characters that were despicable in certain ways but just, just, just occasionally revealed a little bit of humanity. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a benefit to that. Uh, not to be too pretentious about it, but I think there is no, one no, of my no. favorite things. They didn't give me much, but every now and then they would crack a little window on the humanity of this guy. Really rarely, but every now and then. <laughs> and um, I just admired and applaud them for that. I think that's a, I think that's a, a good thing because I mean I don't know about you but I deal with assholes all the time. <laughs> sure. I mean, and I I think that's one of the things too is it allows for a much more you know nuanced discussion when you do have problematic characters on screen because you're able to say okay what makes him such an asshole and what makes him still a you know qualifiably good human being at times yeah so. i mean look you know he was a great surgeon and he saved a lot of lives he wasn't mm-hmm. a pretend he wasn't his skill wasn't a pretense he was just an arrogant <laughs> despicable person to be around 
Um, yeah. yeah. But um, and and when I said um, that you know, look, I work with assholes all the time, don't you? And why did you all look at each other when when I said that? Because that... well, I, li- I, li- I live with an asshole, so like, well, I do too, but it's my yeah, own. We... So anyway, <laughs> no, we've. We've been together for ten years of this. We're used to it by now. But um, as, as the man behind the character, as, as the the actor behind the character, were you ever kind of um, thirsting for more of those nuggets of humanity out of Romano, and maybe more of kind of that moment of absolution? Because we we've got friends who are watching the show for the first time, who <laughs> while while they can appreciate Romano on surface level for his brashness and you know. We, we sort of hyped him up as like, oh, he's the great, he's kind of the villain of the show almost. And like, he brings this like great energy and then he gets into watching it and he's like, they don't tell me why he's an asshole. Like they don't give me any backstory. They don't give me any justification for why he's an asshole. And he, and, and I, we basically warned them of like, yeah, and you're never really going to get that either. So it, it, yeah, is that something early, you were kind of craving? Absolutely. Early in uh, my time there, um, probably my second year as a recurring, or maybe it was, in the, I, I know, somewhere in the early, you know, once I'd been on the show a number of times and I started experiencing, uh, I certainly as an actor had a hope that the character would develop more and, and see more of him and we'd see more of his life or those kinds of things. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. I kind of quickly came to terms with the thing I said before, which is that that's not this character's function on this show. Right. This character's function on this show was to walk in a room, stir everything up, throw a bunch of shit on the wall and leave. That's mm-hmm. what the character's function on the show was. So he, they would find ways occasionally to do a little crack of some kind of humanity in him. But um, but for the most part, again, look, these are all constructs, right? You know, the uh, any dramatic piece, there's there's a, there, it's, it's the, I'll go with this map. There, there, it's a football field. Where are the out of bounds lines? Where are the demarcation lines? Where's the goal line? Then there are the players. Who's who's player? What player is supposed to perform what function towards the team goal of moving the ball across the field down to the goal line? My character's right. function was not a ball carrier. Or if I carried the ball, I would put all kinds of like you know stinging nettles all over it, so that then when anybody <laughs> else got the ball, it would burn their hands. That's what my job was. Right. My character. Right. So to get more simply to answer your question, yes, in the beginning I did kind of wish that there was going to be more sort of development of the character in a sense uh, along the lines of what you're talking about but once i realized what i just described that that's not what how this character functions here you know there's a big I have a big thing about don't look for sugar in the salt shaker this is mm-hmm. this is salt and that's what it's going to be um and that's right. a good thing yeah. salt is good but if you expect it to be sweet you're going to be disappointed so run with the salt go look for the sweet somewhere else and Daniel, there's my argument for why he was most improved character in season MVP this first season on. So there. Thank Wait you. Wait a minute. Oh, tell me what I just won. Uh, so we do season recaps at the end of each season. And I believe it was your first season on the show. I actually nominated you for, I believe it was most improved character. Yep. And it wasn't necessarily because you had improved in any moral way, but it was just the... Well, um, certainly not. The, you... You had settled into the role and had really found the voice with it, and the writers had really learned by the end of the season kind of what that they wanted you to be a spicy jalapeno. And just the improvement from your first episode into the end of that season, sure. it's really just, it's an evolution I really enjoy. So I had to argue to all of our <laughs> listeners that I wasn't talking moral improvement, I was talking from my English major, whatever 
thesis of no improved can mean many different of things character development so character you, specificity but you know you're right because look if you're to go back to the football analogy if i'm a lineman if i'm a guard or a tackle if you know football i did because i played it when i was a kid in like mm-hmm. pop warner league um uh because at that time i was one of the biggest kids on the team ha ha anyway um uh you know if if my job is to be a blocker and i'm constantly trying to grab the ball uh i'm gonna do neither well but right. if you right. can identify what your function is in the piece this could be in a in a play or in a teleplay or in a film or whatever when when you can identify what your character's function is in the piece in the overall effort that's involved um, and then focus on playing that well you end up actually getting i'm not surprised you would say something like that because um you get more um there's something more satisfying about really a, a, a character fulfilling his purpose his or her purpose or there um more and more fully all right, I'll get us back on track now, but thank you for the vindication. What do you mean? You're that. talking about um, me. Let's run. That's fair. That's fair. I like it. Um, but we were talking about Romano's humanity a little bit, and one of the first times we got to see Romano's more human side was during Kelly Martin's final episode when he desperately tries to save her character after her fatal stabbing. You and Kelly had developed a really strong chemistry over the latter part of her time on the show. Did that come about organically? And how do you think it would have progressed had her character stuck around? Um, it's a very interesting question. It would have been very interesting to see those characters develop over time. I liked Kelly a great deal. She was very, uh, and I'm sure she still is. I just haven't talked to her in years. Uh, she's very, very sweet and a lovely actress. And um, it's interesting because I think oddly, and just it's one of those strange coincidences, I think that the character chemistry between these two actually didn't really start kicking in until that final season when they had already determined that she was right. going to be leaving the show and yeah. it, it's very it was very odd and it was, it was it was disappointing in that sense for me because um i felt like you know in some ways i think uh they had look they there were various characters over the years that they you know threw up on the wall to see what would stick and and Kelly's character kind of wasn't finding its place, not through any fault of hers, as far as I was concerned, but the character wasn't quite, you know, settling into, as you talked about Romano, settling into that role. Um, And so I think they, I I may have this wrong, because I don't have inside information, but I think that they had kind of come to realize that and thought, okay, well, we're going to let this one go and we'll write other characters. And then after they did that, she started settling into what I thought was an interesting place. but, uh, you know, I guess that ship had kind of sailed. So I don't know. I think it would have been an interesting thing to see what happened if uh, if she had um, survived that from that operation rather than not. Yeah. yeah. What um, what was the experience? Because that was also not only not only is it, of course, a big moment for her. It's her last episode of the show, but it's also one of the more kind of like big emotional uh, where you get to kind of flex your acting muscles a little bit. Uh, moments that you had gotten on the show up to that point. So, like, what was the experience of that whole episode, like, putting that together? It was, you know, it was a moving thing. Look, anytime any character, any anybody was leaving the show, it was it, it was emotional because we liked each other. Uh, right. or I liked people. I don't know if they liked me. I don't. Um, <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what to say about that. The, things happen. I'm, you know, I, I can get critical about my own work about things, so we'll, I'll leave that alone at the moment. But, um, 
Uh, I think that it was obviously that was again in the hands, as I recall it. Jonathan Kaplan directed that. I know. Yep. And um, Jonathan's just a really smart, good director, and uh, and he pushes for um, emotion, but emotion, but honestly, uh, and uh, emotional honesty. I think. Um, and um, I hope he achieved that. I, uh, I I think he did. I think he's quite quite a skilled skilled director. So I yeah I don't really know what else to say about that except that it was, you know, it's emotional and uh, uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> you th- you threw the hell out of that tray, so you know. I did throw the hell out of the tray. <laughs> you really? I don't know. I don't know how many takes you got at that, an, but that was in a bit of bit of an homage. Uh, embarrassingly in certain ways to um, Brando in One-Eyed Jacks. If you look at One-Eyed Jacks, there's a moment where, which I, I think I was trying to repeat and I did it poorly, but there's there's this moment, if you anybody wants to look it up, where he has his hands gripping a table and like you're the camera and he's here gripping this table uh, uh, in front of you, like looking just past camera to whoever he's talking to. Mm-hmm. And he's holding this table, like threatening this guy, and he just hurls the table behind him, like get wow. it away from the, like the obstacle away from in between him. And I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. So when I, I was looking for something uh, to um, to be expressive of the frustration of that, and I, I it, it was also so surprising when he did it, because right. it felt like he was mm-hmm. just leaning in and holding on to it. Uh, so um, that was my attempt to steal from Marlon Brando. So there's that possession and, um, you know, a pale comparison, but nonetheless. It it still makes for an an excellent moment. So so jumping ahead a little bit, you touched on this a little bit earlier. One of the show's most memorable moments, of course, comes when Romano loses an arm to a helicopter blade in the season nine premiere. How does this idea first get presented to you and what were your initial reactions to it? (laughs) So my recollection of it is I got a call to uh, meet with uh, the producers and writers. And um, and uh, that's never a good thing. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I walked in curious about what was happening and they explained what their plan was. And I said, so um, I assume you're writing me out. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. And I thought to myself, a one-armed surgeon? How are we going to do that? Um, so, I mean, you know, I just thought, okay, well, I guess my time's short here, um, honestly. Uh, but they were very assuring that it wasn't. I thought, okay, you know, look, my, my, I'm there to help them tell their story. So, okay, good. You know, uh, it seemed very dramatic <laughs> and yeah. very extreme. Uh, yeah. And they said, and they said they wanted to do some of the things that they ended up doing, which was exploring the whole world of prosthetics and the state of the art of that, and what that means, and how it, you know, I mean, it obviously made for a lot of good uh, storytelling for a while, for that season anyway, uh, until the next season. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those parsing of the words things. Well, we're not writing you out yet. Like yeah. we're not writing you out this year. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't use the word yet. They just said, "Oh no, no, no." <laughs> the yet was in the back of no. my mind. Right, so. right, right. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have to ask as a follow-up to that, how, like from a visual effects perspective, how did they kind of handle shooting, you know, your lack of an arm each 
episode because that's something I always watch and I'm trying to look and see how they're doing it and I still haven't been able to figure well, it out. I so. mean, look, it was anything from, you know, the arm back in the back to yeah. the thing and a little built out thing there uh, to, um, you know, to, if you really look at it, there aren't, I mean, actually, I shouldn't say this. I don't, I don't remember. I don't recall <laughs> that many shots of the character without an arm. There are some, obviously. Uh, the more dramatic ones there there were a couple of times where i wore a green sleeve and they yep. literally okay. painted my arm out uh you know yep. uh, which are some of the most effective ones um and then it was quickly to the prosthesis which um uh or prosthetics i guess uh which um were then you know obviously my hand was inside the thing and you you know at, at one point when it was the more when it was a hook at first which I'm sure there's a more proper name for it, but he called it that, so whatever. Um, yeah. Well, it's we, that's what we know yeah. it as from him. Yeah. It's fine. So, um, you know, when it was that, uh, uh, it, my hand was inside the device and, and operating it. When it was um, later, the more uh, advanced one, unless there was a shot where they were clearly demonstrating the robotics of it separate from me, that was basically my hand with a glove on it, and I would, like, you know, try and open it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes in it a even mechanical better. fashion oh. and, and move it in a you know in a mechanical yeah. fashion. I would try to make yeah. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that well, that's gotta you. also too allow you to uh, you know explore being funny in a different way too, rather than just being you know because there was a lot of like especially in the beginning, the early days of it, there was a lot of like physical comedy stuff with the hook and like there was like little things where they would try to, so it's got to be fun to and freshen up the character a little bit for you of like oh i get to do physical more physical type stuff rather than always just being the quippy guy absolutely yeah it was great it opened it, it absolutely opened up a whole little other area of things to explore and things to play uh both yeah. with my characters some of it you know really fun and funny some of it a bit maudlin uh which maybe wouldn't have been good maybe if we didn't hadn't gone to the maudlin he would have survived longer i don't know but yeah. uh yeah 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 but it opened up new ways to tell stories and it was fun you have to play with that stuff sure so you directed your first episode in 2002 of season nine's next of yes. kin what made you want to direct and what lessons did you take from directing er onto other shows that you directed for since oh my god um so I always thought I would direct theater. Uh, I'd been thinking about it for a very long time because as a young actor, as many young actors, um, I, like many young actors, I thought I knew more than the director. Um, <laughs> and so I uh, couldn't wait for a chance for me to show everyone how much I knew. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I had learned hopefully by that time that I was wrong. Um, but um, I was here and I was in LA and I was doing this TV show and I started watching and getting interested in visual storytelling. And um, I, some of it was a little bit out of a kind of boredom. Uh, some of it was out of, hmm, do I wanna go here? Yeah, why not? Uh, I had an illness and it put me in a great deal of pain. Uh, and so I was uh, looking for ways to distract myself. And um, while I was on the show, it was something that was um, uh, very, very, very painful. And so, uh, I started watching directing because, you know, I was only acting, as I said, anywhere from two to four days per episode, sometimes less, uh, depending on how much they needed the character. Um, so I had some time to kill. Uh, and um, other than, which was the, the greatest thing about that character was that I got to spend my kids' first several years of their lives with them while being well-employed. 
because I, as I said, I would work, you know, one or two days, to, I mean, two to four days an episode. The rest of the time I could be with them, which was, yeah, I'm so grateful for. Um, but, you know, professionally, artistically, I was getting a little bored. So I started just hanging around and watching and asking a lot of questions. And I started getting interested in it. And film seemed very, very foreign to me. Theater, I understood film, all the technical aspects of it. it, it I didn't think I had any aptitude for it all, frankly. But I made a study of it. And I took a you know, a workshop and and uh, and then started knocking at the door on ER and, you know, asked the right people and had meetings with everyone who I needed to have meetings with or lunches with or whoever to say, no, I'm really serious. And and um, uh, so uh, at the end of the season before that, so I guess it was the spring of 2002. Is that what it was? 2002? Uh, mm-hmm. or, yeah. Good Lord. I'm looking back because I have a Anyways, uh, the um, <laughs> no, there's a, there's a there, I was presented a very lovely gift of a uh, a slate that had the date and the altercation mm, from that first mm, episode oh, that I nice. directed. It was it was very sweet. So um, uh, in that spring, uh, I had had planned to um, make a short uh, as a uh, you know it's because and and then they told me I was going to get an episode the following season. Um, and I don't know this for sure, but I have always suspected that uh, both Jonathan uh, Kaplan and Chris Chulak had a lot to do with that. Chris was also a producer and fine, fine director on the show. And um, I think they both thought maybe I was serious. So, um, uh, but I still made my short because I didn't want my first day in the chair to be on the number one show on television. Um, <laughs> I wanted to make some mistakes on my own uh, dime responsibly and also didn't want I, I wanted to, yeah, I didn't, both responsibly and uh, uh, survival-wise, I wanted to do that. So I made my short, I learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, and I went to do um, my first episode and worked my tail off in prep and unfortunately yelled a lot my first episode. What I rem- remember most is that I yelled, I yelled for quite a lot, and I was very, um, let's say, overly, um, uh I, I was tr- I, my intent was to be efficient and respect everyone's time and get everybody get the work done and get everybody home. But as my children will tell you, if you ever talk to them, when I'm thinking, I speak loudly. So <laughs> I speak loudly a lot, and it can be very overbearing. And I was most certainly very overbearing my first time directing. Uh, but. Um, you know, one of the great things about having a, a wonderful company like that is that um, I know the ways that they carried me, and I also know that there are ways I'll never know that they carried me through that first episode, and yeah. um, and tolerated me, and uh, I'm extremely grateful for that. And you know, to put it frankly, I didn't screw it up too badly, so they let me do another one, and. Um, I didn't screw that one up so badly. So the John at the time, uh, John Wells had um, third watch on. So he invited me the next season to do an episode of that show, uh, which I would have been invited back, but it was it ended up being the last season of that show. Um, so that kind of kicked it off. That kind of started it out. Um, and for what it's worth, for other theater people who are thinking about directing, the, the book that most clearly uh, helped me understand conceptually or be it relate to, I should say, conceptually, um, how a director worked um, or could work, was Sidney Lumet's book. I think it's called Making Movies, if I remember correctly. 
And it, it basically helped me understand that all of these technical elements that I knew I didn't know anything about were all in service to storytelling. I didn't understand how you even chose what lens or how, what goes into what decisions about lighting or wardrobe or all these things. And of course, it makes perfect sense. It's all in service to the story. How does this lighting or this lens or this shot or this set affect the storytelling, propel the storytelling, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that started me on a journey of, um, of uh, working my ass off to try and understand as many aspects of television, or I should say of filmmaking, as I could, which I continue to be on. So, mm -hmm. Is it easier or harder for you, or was it, I guess, in this case, being that you were on the show at the same time with these people, was it easier or harder to direct a group of actors who you also work alongside, you know, is it easier because you speak their language and you know what's expected of them and what's expected of you? Or is it harder because they're your peers as well as your actors in that case? They... Um... Uh, they they would have to tell you uh, if if okay here's what I know my experience was that everybody was very gracious and uh, and game to be directed by me mm -hmm. uh, if I had acting notes most of the time actors feel like they're directing in a vac or acting in a vacuum that's one of the problems that that theater thing um, part of what I think the director's job is is to be a surrogate audience to actors and it doesn't mean you give all the audience reactions, but you make sure that they understand that you understand what they're doing and what's happening with them. And then if they have a sense that you do often, you can offer suggestions, uh, direction, uh, nuance uh, changes that they'll run with and try and explore. Um, every now and then, I mean, 99% of the time, actors in my experience are grateful to have someone who understands acting directing. Uh, once in a while, you get someone who kind of feels like, oh, you're going to tell me how to act? You're going you're to tell me how to do my character? You, Mr. Act? You know, once in a while, that would happen. But it's very, very rare because most of the time, actors want to feel like, because we, we want to feel like we're communicating. So if right. somebody's there saying, I see that. This is what it's looking like. I think, try this. What if that happens? What if that you, what if you go, you know, that, then you're in the game. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, complete tonal shift here. Uh, when it came time for you to leave the show in 2003, what were your emotions at the time? And did you expect such a spectacular ending for Ramona? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. No, I certainly uh, didn't. Uh, I'll tell this story now. Um, I don't know if I've told this before publicly. Um, so, exclusive! Um, <laughs> oh, yes! I got another call to come meet with the producers. Never a good thing. Nope. <laughs> and you know, I don't, you know how these contracts work. You're you're on a, I mean, the typical one at the time was a seven-year contract, but it's not a seven-year contract. It's a one-year contract with seven options to pick options, up your contract yeah. for an additional, mm -hmm. additional year or six ones, I should say. And so, um, uh, oh, sorry, one second, I just got interfered. There we go. And so, um, what uh, uh, every year when we would be in hiatus during the hiatus at some point one's agent would get a call saying they've picked up your option for next year um and it's funny because my wife used to we would talk about the next year or trying to make plans or whatever and i'd say well let's wait till we get my option see if my option gets picked up or that kind of thing she'd say are you out of your mind there's 11 protagonists one antagonist they're never going <laughs> to argue they're going to argue crazy <laughs> And I'd say, well, you know, I've been in the business long enough. I, you know, I, I don't count on it till the check clears. So um, <laughs> I, uh, 
it was uh, only a couple of episodes into the season, because I don't remember exactly which episode in that season, but it was early when they uh, decided to off the, off the guy. Um, I got a call to go meet with uh, John and Chris, uh, John Wells and Chris Julak. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, what's going on? Um, and I walked in a room and um, they were very cool and kind and, you know, it was very nice and the ch chit chat kind of ended and, and the, the break the ice stuff. And then it was like, so we're coming to the end of this character. And I, I said, oh, um, uh, well, okay, okay. Uh, when? Sorry about this. Next episode. Jesus. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, um, oh my God. And I, uh, and, and here's, here's the thing in that moment i and they said you know we're, we're sorry about that and i and we talked a little bit and you know i think someone said something like i'm sure you want to do some other things and i said something like have i given anyone the impression that i'm not happy here or something like that no 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 because and i really quickly sussed out this is not a conversation this is being informed this is not about there's no issue this is just it's like and i i will share what i said which it was honest and and true and i'm really glad that i had the presence of mind to say it which was uh i told them i'm really grateful uh, uh it's very gracious of you to uh to apologize but you know uh here's the deal i i can't say that i'm not surprised <laughs> and i can't say that i'm not disappointed but um, you guys don't owe me any apology. I came on here seven years ago as a guest that became a recurring character that became a uh, 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 that became a cast regular that started my directing career. I have nothing but gratitude for you people. And that was true. Um, and, you know, look, any of these characters are in service. They don't owe me anything. I'm, I'm, I'm in service of the show. I completely disagree with the logic of the decision. <laughs> but uh, I didn't tell them. But um, but I did. But I meant the. You know, that's that's the truth. That's the reality. You know, we work in a casino. We're professional gamblers. We all we can do is be ready to take advantage of the opportunity when it comes. But we don't choose where the ball's going to fall or what card's going to get dropped or any of that kind of. What torturing this one? What what number's going to come up on the dice? We don't. It's not our. It's not our call. So. Mm. But at any point, I don't even know. I'm running with that answered your question, huh? Sorry. No, you got at any point in that meeting. You know, they they're giving you all the pleasantries. They're they're blowing sunshine up your ass before they tell you you're fired. At any point, do they say, "Oh, by the way, we're gonna drop a fucking helicopter on your head"? Oh, oh yeah, we talked about it. Okay. And and you know, I thought it was a little bit like you know Ahab and Moby Dick to have the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Helicopter oh. took, took my arm. Now it's taking the rest of me. But, you know. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Again, right. not again, not my call. You know, not right. my call. Yeah. Our our friend who is watching it for the first time, we are desperately trying to coordinate, um, filming his reaction, <laughs> like watching it with him for that because when when the initial helicopter attack happened he was like oh my god you guys what is happening to the show so we're really curious <laughs> to see how he feels when the helicopter comes back helicopter two electric oh boogaloo gosh. and how he's gonna handle it i'm so. gonna share one other thing that i i uh, about that whole thing that uh Please. i don't know if i should business-wise whatever but the hell with it this speaks to um 
I think, uh, frankly, it speaks to John Wells' honorability, honorableness, honorableness, which is, um, you know, there are different kinds of contracts in television for actors. There are, you know, you you can be a cast regular, but the uh, what's called seven out of 13, 10 out of 13 are all shows produced, which is what it sounds like. You, they guarantee you'll be in, let's say, seven of every 13 that are made. You may work in more, but they're only guaranteeing you this this many and you get a per uh, episode fee. Um, I, at that point, had an, what's called an all-shows-produced contract, meaning if the character was in it or not, if they made an episode, I got paid a fee for that episode. Mm -hmm. So this was early in the season. I, it couldn't have been more than episode five when they were telling me, I, I think, in what was then 26-episode seasons. Uh, and um, uh, before my even asking, uh, John said, you know, you know, sorry about this next episode, but we know you have an all-shows-produced contract, uh, contract, and we're going to pay you out. So yeah, that's and and that is not standard. Even if legally they might have had to do that after a protracted battle, theoretically, I don't think most shows would have done that, or most producers yeah. would have done. That. They would have said, "Well, I know we did this, but you know," and and they would have relied on, "Don't make trouble if you want to work in this business. Just accept the severance we're giving you," kind of thing, and you know maybe right. paid a couple of episodes more, and then you'd be done. But to their credit, you know, that's a pretty that was a pretty good severance package. So I, I really can't yeah. <laughs> complain about that either. That's you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty good. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the most memorable on screen death for you? Getting doused in toxic waste <laughs> in Robocop. <laughs> oh, I was waiting for this. <laughs> Losing your head in an ambulance crash in X Files or getting a hell of a Well, you forgot you being ER. dragged, uh, breaking my back backwards through uh, uh, the, the door of a church in the blob when the blob grabs you. Uh, oh, yes. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Through that. Yeah. So. Um, you may or may not know they're they're somewhere probably exists still on the web a good 10 15 years ago somebody told me somebody put together a reel they called and paul mccrane dies at the end and i'm looking for it right now while we talk it's a super cut of the death scenes that i'd had to date that include all the things we've just discussed now so um uh, I, I don't know that I have a favorite death scene of them all. It's That's all so much fun. Um, <laughs> Do you start to take yeah. it personally at a certain point? Like well, they know, keep killing really you over and over again. One of the first episodes, one of the first things that I, um, one of the first plays that I did uh, was John Guare's Landscape of the Body in New York. And um, when I was 16 and that character gets decapitated. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I I uh, I really I I've wondered over the years what 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 kind of um, let's say uh, fictitious karma I have uh, developed so, over the years or uh, or yes yeah, dramatic karma. So you you did it before Sean Bean. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Sean was copying me for crying out loud. We've gotten to the bottom. That's where of they got the that. original. I got Sean I got Bean. my tray throw from Brando. He got the decapitation from me. So. <laughs> And dying, dying and everything. everything. Dying and everything. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> I don't know how to transition out of that. So, uh, just, just ask. Had. You just move on. <laughs> <laughs> what What segway, was segway, segway. What was the experience like coming back to the show in 2008, playing a air quotes past version of the character? Uh, older and heavier. Um, so apparently the afterlife and the memory gave me put weight on my character. I don't know how that happened. Um. <laughs> 
you know, look, it was really sweet. One of the great things that happened for me on that show was that because I started directing there for all but a couple of years, I directed one or two episodes a year on the show. Right. Um, so I still was engaged and still was involved and got to see everybody now and again. And, um, and the new folks that came in, the, the crew, many of the, some, some of the crew were there through the whole run, which are, you know, great, great people. And yeah. um, so, so, um, you know, it was just, it was just a nice, it was very sweet to be invited to, to do a little minor homage to the past characters, which I was obviously not one of the uh, in, initial folks, but um, you know, it was, it was, I was very grateful to be brought back. It was very flattering. Yeah. Yeah. Brief, brief though it was funny though it was. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you of what was a funny story, which is this is more directorial, and maybe you don't want this, but I'll throw it in there. No, bring um, it. In the early years when I was on the show, you know, the Steadicam Oneers that were a hallmark of usually the first act of the show, uh, some of which were uh, just really spectacular. Um, uh, you know, it could take a while to get the first print uh, because a lot it depended on an awful lot of timing, a right. lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So it was not uncommon that when you'd hear the director yell, cut print, a cheer would go up on set. It was like, really, it was exciting. We did it because you could have done 10, 12 takes and not gotten a print yet. It could have, you've been working on it for an hour and not printed yet. <laughs> and, you know, cut a third of the way through a scene or that kind of thing. So <laughs> um, uh, after, a, after a number of years of directing on the show, I, and I'm sorry I did this actually, but I, I was invited to direct and I, I said, and I hope they heard the thank you part of it, but I said, no, thank you, because I felt like it was I was going back home too much and I needed to work outside of my home camp, both for my benefit and because they still saw me as the kid in the family, in a sense. And so I didn't direct on the show for a couple of years. And then after a few years said, you know, I, I really I'd love to come back. I just I wasn't I hope you weren't insulted. I just wanted to I thought it was important for me as director to branch out and do some other things. So I came back and it was in one of the later seasons. And I, at that time I got, I gotten to be a, a little better as a director and I designed a very complex Steadicam Warner. And we got it by about the fifth take. And when I said, cut print, everybody kind of went, okay, next, what? What's next? <laughs> and it had become so easy for them. Not easy because <laughs> it was complicated, but it had become, you know, what the show did. <laughs> right. And it kind of went, it's a little disappointing. <laughs> yeah, didn't didn't get that payoff you were looking for. Yeah, you know. I, well, no, they appreciated the shot. It was just like, oh, okay. They, no, it's not jaded. It's just like anything else. You know, you, if you're if you sure they that that show really really and you know that became a staple of the show, and people got good at it. So when right. it, when in the early years it was still a tightrope walk every time. Um, less so later. Still as, as I recall, when we uh, spoke to, I think it was. Um... Yvette Freeman, she said, mm -hmm. uh, we asked her about one of the more like emotional scenes that she was involved in, which is mm. like a big moment in the show's canon and everything. We asked her about okay. her thoughts on that and like what it, what her feelings were at the time. And she she looked at us and very sweetly said, you know, honey, it was another Thursday at work. I don't remember. You know, and, and, and there is a certain yeah. element of that in that, too. Yeah. You know, it was it's part of the process when you're doing it, you know, and some of these things stand out and you remember them and that's nice. And, and, and others. But, yeah, it's it's a Thursday at work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's really become our new way of looking at the show sometimes and we're like god we overanalyzed the shit out of this but to a lot of people it was just another thursday at work yeah. like oh. but you know what 
that that over analysis, as you call it, uh, you know, I don't think that's not worth it. Another Thursday at work with us was building, you know, we were we were building the upper levels of the pyramid that had a massive wide base underneath it. Mm-hmm. And if we're it's, examining that, that's just because we, we, you know, that just became the, the language that we all learned to speak. And then we're speaking that language. Um, but the development of that language is a whole thing in and of itself. It, yeah, just so you know, people are still finding the show and still like coming to us and being like, oh my God, I wish I was alive 20 years ago. Yeah, (laughs) we have high schoolers that listen to us and are like, oh my God. So just so you know, it's still got quite longevity to it. And people are still discovering it and enjoying it to this day. Um, The next, speaking of our listeners, the next couple questions were submitted by them. Okay. So first one is, do you still sing? Is it okay if I call you mine is my favorite song from fame. That's awfully sweet. Yes, I do. Uh, Occasionally. Uh, actually, I, I, I kind of left the guitar alone for a number of years, but I picked it up about two, three years ago again, and I play a lot. Uh, I don't play out, not right now anyway, but uh, but I play a guitar a lot and I sing. Yeah, yeah. So um, whoever whoever wrote that, thank you. It's very, very flattering that uh, to, to hear that. So thank you. Yep. And then next one, a little bit of a longer one. Um, when Laura Inez was interviewed, she talked about her connection to the disability community before, during, and after playing a disabled character, as well as her current perspective on having played a disabled character as an able actor given the disability community's advocacy (laughs) to cast disabled actors to play disabled actors and tell their own stories. Here's the question. (laughs) Is that something you did or have ever thought about, especially given that Romano started as an able-bodied character and became an amputee halfway through his character arc? Um, I could not applaud more. And uh, what seems like a very obvious thing at this point, the value and the importance of giving opportunity to people who are differently able to actually work. Um, it's hard enough for anybody to get work. So I think it's really uh, like about time that we all woke up and said, oh yeah, that's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that said, um, any character is is make-believe and a projection and a drawing mm-hmm. from elements of oneself to portray someone else. So mm-hmm. it, I, I, I do think that there's an extremity that can happen where one can think that unless the character is written as a short, bald, uh, fast-talking um, uh, guy who was grew up in Philadelphia, moved to New York when he was seventeen, and you know, you know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. It's yes. you know, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, we are playing characters. In right. in my character's uh, situation. I have to be honest, I didn't think of that at the time, although I suppose what might have been a thing that could have been explored at the time, and I don't know if they thought of it, was introducing through this character other other, other differently abled people yeah. that this character might have had some interaction with or something like that because right. of the whole thing. That that could have been. But, you know, uh, I, I don't believe that when the character was um, originally created, they had any thought that they were going to eventually have an amputation happen to them. So um, yeah. that's kind of a different thing. I didn't have any feeling about that at the time. Um, uh, and honestly, I think it's the same in terms of sexuality or that kind of stuff. I mean, um, again, it's just it's not an it's not a it's not a an absolute morality kind of a thing for me. 
Absolutely. The uh, and now as a director, I work um, very hard when I'm able to um, direct. And if a, if something comes up, I'm constantly asking about can can we cast this diverse? Can we cast this with people mm-hmm. you know, to open these things up to try and get past. You know, people your age, I think, tend to think of these things. It's automatic. It's more a part of just the normal language of the landscape of your thinking. I'm 60. People my age, uh, still uh, as progressive as we we might want to be, uh, and might think of ourselves to be, we came up at a time where it was unusual mm-hmm. to think of that. Mm-hmm. So I make an effort to try to um, to uh, make sure that we're keeping things as open as possible. So and really, it's purely it's purely pragmatic. I want people to work. And there are not a lot of opportunities for people who have disabilities, for lack of a better way of saying it, to work sometimes. And um, uh, I try to make sure that um, certainly if something's written, uh, and I'm not alone. It's not like I'm fighting uphill at this point. (laughs) If something's written for someone who's wheelchair um, uh, who uses a wheelchair, they, they're already bringing people in who use wheelchairs. That's what we're, that's, right. that's given. It's not like I'm a hero about this, but I do try to say, okay, all right, can this character be someone in a wheelchair? For example, let's say, you know, sure. does, is there an important thing about them being, uh, uh, you know, not using a wheelchair or that kind of thing. Right. So, so, uh, and again, because I, I grew up with some people who were, um, who had some disabilities or, uh, different things, um, you know. Uh, my baldness is a, anyway uh, <laughs> that um, that have uh, that that you know. And I saw talented people who couldn't work. There were no roles right. for them. So, right. just given the practical realities, let's open it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, give right. you know it. Yeah, uh, you know. It, it, anyway, that's you understand where I can overtalk things. Absolutely, yes. no. I do overtalk things. That's yeah. that's fine. That's yeah, what that's, we're here for. You, you've you've, you've <laughs> just summarized the entire uh, medium of podcasting right there. Um, <laughs> one uh, one final question that we make a habit out of asking everybody we talk to: What do you think okay. it is important for fans of ER to know about it from your unique perspective? In other words, when you think back on your time on the show, what would you want fans to know about the experience that wouldn't necessarily be clear just from watching? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is something I've already talked about, which is just the extraordinary group of people who did it. Um, every family has its problems and its challenges and that kind of thing. And all, we all are flawed people and we have our own uh, issues and problems. But what impressed me from the first day I worked on that to the last day I worked on that was that certainly the original cast uh, who could have, as I said earlier, been just total monsters, horrible, you know, you know, there, there's a, there's a thing that happens. All right. Uh, so, so when's the last time you walked into a room and every head turned to, to you with delight and awe? It did happen to you, hopefully. <laughs> you were two. Well, yeah. <laughs> and when you're two, you have all kinds of fantasies about what the world is and how powerful you are and what your place in the world is, or rather how the world revolves around you. And as we mature, we come to learn, oh, I really can't fly. I wish I could fly. I can get in an airplane to fly, but I can't just fly because I think about it, I wish it, and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly something starts happening. And everyone starts, you some experience, some ancient experience starts getting revived. I'm, oh my God, everybody's looking at me like I'm really special. Somewhere inside, a conflict starts because some part of you is going, yeah, we grew out of this, didn't we? And some other part of you is going, yeah, but we don't have to. We are the most important thing in the world. 
And that starts screwing up a, a lot of particularly younger people. The very good fortune about this show is that George and Anthony had, been, had Tony had been around for a while already. And they were the one and two on the call sheet. And so they really did set the tone. And these that and that was a tone of people who were um, sane, rational, um, humble, uh, dedicated to their work, had a sense of humor, didn't take themselves too seriously, but took the work seriously and just really had an awareness of other people and primarily had an awareness of how lucky they were that this show worked. And it was not only successful, it was good. People were really trying to do good work, ups and downs, but it was yeah. So that to me was the thing that I most remember from that show. And that tenor, that tone, again, ups and downs, and I'm sorry for all the dinging you may be hearing. I'm trying to turn this off. Um, that sense of really coming to try and do the best work you can and to give people something worth spending an hour of their time, their precious time, watching. Um, uh and with a sense of humor that to me was unique about that show and um other shows do it other shows but but few do it as successfully uh as that one did and that's really you know i've had some great jobs i've worked in great places i've never worked someplace better than that there have been some places i've worked that i think have rivaled it but um in environments or or that kind of thing but not one better and i don't anticipate that i will.